0: Well, if you would take your Bible and turn with me to Joel chapter 3. We finish this morning our study of the book of Joel. Just three short chapters. A series of poems and teachings around 2,500 years old and yet still as relevant as ever. I'm going to read through uh, these 21 verses here. So if you would give... Careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Joel chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken." Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am a warrior, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there, bring down your warriors, O Lord, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Everyone loves a good comeback. We see it in sports. Just this past week, the Atlanta Hawks came back from 26 points down to defeat the Philadelphia 76ers. They called it a meltdown, but you've got to love the moxie of a team that can come back from nearly 30 points down in a playoff game. I'm going to resist the temptation to describe the glories of the 2010 Iron Bowl um, when my Auburn Tigers were down 24 to nothing with the national championship season on the line and came back to win 28 to 24. Um, am I going to resist this temptation? Let's... <laughs> Let's talk about it. No, no, I'm going to stop. Maybe you're not a sports fan, but literature is also filled with stories of reversal, a reversal of fortunes. We might think about all the great fairy tales, Cinderella, right? The story of a reversal of fates, or Oliver Twist, or the Count of Monte Cristo. Or even in scripture, we think of a story like Esther, and Mordecai. Haman had constructed gallows for Mordecai and it turned out to be Haman who was hanged and Mordecai freed. We love these comeback stories, these stories of reversal. And this text too, as you could hear in those verses a moment ago, is about a reversal of fortunes. Indeed, it is the great reversal of God's judgment where God's people are vindicated and God's land is restored. Joel 2, uh, verse 18, I think is is really the key turning point in this short prophecy of Joel that in a sense orients the rest of the book along these two axes. If you look back to verse 18 of chapter 2, we read there, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. That's what these... Chapters are all about God is restoring his land and his people. The great covenantal promises that God made to Abraham. Go to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. You hear that land and people and I will bless you and all and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what's happening in the book of Joel is God promising to fulfill his great covenant promises. Land and people, people and place. Those are our two points this morning. Really simple. What God is promising here in Joel 3 is that God's people will be vindicated and God's place will be restored. And what a great and glorious hope this is. And the key to both of these promises is the Lord's presence. We see that in verse 17 of chapter 3. When God is promising to judge the enemies of Israel he says so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in my holy mountain. And again in verse 12 back up to verse 12 let let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge. God's presence will ensure that God's promises come to pass. So we have all the elements of the great covenantal promises of God here. God's people and God's place, experiencing God's blessing, a blessing that is extended to all those who call on the name of the Lord and all of it rooted, grounded, centered upon, oriented towards the presence of God himself. So you you thought Joel was just uh, an irrelevant book you forgot about. But it's all here. The whole storyline of the Bible is right here in Joel. It's not an accident then that On the very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up, read from Joel 2, and said, today this has been fulfilled. God's spirit has descended, and God's promises are coming to pass. So we'll take these one at a time. God's people will be vindicated in verses 1 to 16, and then God's place will be restored in verses 17 to 21. Notice again here in verse 1, he says, Behold, in those days and at that time. There's no break here from what has just uh, been in the preceding verses in chapter 2. You probably know this, but the chapter and verse divisions were not original to, to the original Hebrew. Those were added later as a way of helping us like we did today. Look at this verse, look at that verse. They're added as a tool to help us know where we can all turn to read them and see them. But in the original, it's all one continuous thought. And the promises that we read about in chapter 2, the, the coming of the Spirit on all flesh, uh, which again is, is, is uh, quoted in Acts 2, and this great promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which is quoted in Romans 10, that promise of, of the Spirit-empowered people of God and the, ext- the extension of the offer of salvation That is now continued in these verses as well. So it's not as if, we might be tempted to think uh, Joel 2 is what was fulfilled in the first century uh, through, through Jesus and through the Spirit. And now Joel 3 is talking about something that's entirely future, right? Because you get a lot of judgment restoration type language here. So we might be tempted to think, well, that's all coming in the future. But actually, no, it's in some sense already here in the preaching of the gospel by the Spirit-empowered church. Judgment and restoration are already happening, even now, but not yet, right? There's a tension here that we learn in the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets uh, didn't quite foresee this, right, Uh, in the same way that we know on this side of the resurrection and ascension that the the coming of God's kingdom is going to be a two-stage thing there's going to be a first coming and a second coming right there's going to be a first advent and a second advent that Jesus has come to inaugurate his kingdom promises and yet he went away right and he's promised to come again in the future so there's this now and not yet both here and there tension that we learn about in the New Testament and I think we have to approach Joel 3 in precisely that way that what we read here is in a sense pointing us forward to a future judgment, a future vindication of God's people, a future resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet that's already taking place in seed form. Jesus compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. It starts out small, the smallest of all the seeds, and it grows into this tree that the birds find their rest in. So it starts even now. Even now, these promises are coming to pass. This This promise that God will vindicate his people and will, my phone is ringing and that's really interesting that somebody would call me while I'm preaching. Um, But here we are. I didn't think to turn it off because who calls me at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? So there's no break here. The, The promises are both now and not yet. And we see that, I think, even in the perspective of the New Testament. So I'm not going to work through every single detail of this. There's a lot here uh, for us to see, but I do want to highlight a few things that might be confusing to us or you might not know quite what that means. Whenever, um, for example, in verse 2, we read, I will gather all the nations and and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, when I hear Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat, I think about Looney Tunes, right? Jumping Jehoshaphat, I think that's what uh, Yosemite Sam would say. What what in the world is this? Jehoshaphat. Well, there was a king named Jehoshaphat uh, in in the Old Testament, but many commentators on this text don't believe that's what what this is referring to. What Jehoshaphat's name means and what this word here, Jehoshaphat, means is the Lord will judge. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily saying something about the king who had lived previously, but instead it's saying that this is the place where God will sit in judgment. Okay, that's what it's saying. But all the nations of the earth, all of them are, are, are called to come to the valley, to this, 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 this space between the mountains where they can all gather around, the multitudes gather around to be judged. And then he begins to describe some of those people. We see some of those place names here. That's all the nations, right? But there are some who are especially hi- highlighted. Tyre and Sidon, uh, the Philistines. We're familiar with some of these people from, from our Old Testament stories and then later uh, we read about um, Egypt, right? So we, we, we're hearing all these nations, the Edomites, who basically these were, were Israel's surrounding neighbors who at one time or another and in different ways had persecuted Israel, right? It wasn't just the Babylonians, but it was also the Edomites who mocked their exile into Babylon, uh, it was also the Egyptians. I didn't I'd, I'd forgotten this until I was studying this passage this week, that the Egyptians actually had murdered King Josiah. One of the great kings of, of, of Old Testament Judah, was murdered by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so these are people who have persecuted Israel in various ways. And you can see the the, the level of their depravity, the level of their wickedness in places like verse three where it says they have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So the, 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 the sex slave trade was something that was going on in some of these surrounding nations. And so it's we're talking about deep depravity. This is not just Israel mad because they lost a political fight with their neighbors. We're talking about nations that were deeply wicked. And as we look around our world today, it's not hard to find similar instances of wickedness. And if you're like me, you're sort of a a news junkie, it's easy to get discouraged about the state of the world. And it's not getting worse, it's just always been bad. And that's even more disheartening, right? When you realize that, you know, it's not just that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but it's already been there. And what do you do? When you hear the great promises of God, They can sort of ring hollow many times when we look at the world around us. We see things like human trafficking. When you see things like the scourge of abortion. When you see wars. When you see abject poverty and destitution. When you see sex abuse. When you read these horrendous stories of human wickedness. It's easy to lose heart and wonder, where is the kingdom of God now? And when you experience it yourself, when you experience the trials, the tribulations of fallen human existence, when someone abuses you, when someone hurts you, when someone close to you dies, we wonder, where is God? Where is the kingdom? Where are the promises of God now? In a passage like this, is in the Bible to remind us that God has not taken a vacation. We may not see the vindication in our lifetimes. That's another thing that this passage reminded me of. At the very last, the very last verse of the chapter, God says, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. God acknowledges it. That it's not yet come. And the readers of this book, and we today might wonder when. When is it going to happen? Why have you not done this? And God is promising to us, I will avenge their blood. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it. The people who were taken away into exile, many of them died without ever having seen the promises come to pass. And that's a difficult truth, but you may not see in your lifetime the wicked avenged. But God is saying he will do it. It is as certain as the promises of God. God will vindicate his people. There is a great reversal coming. Notice also what happens to the people who persecuted Israel is the exact same thing that will happen to them. There's a fittingness, a a justice to what's going to happen. They did this to Israel, now it's going to happen to them. Not because God is uh, some kind of bloodthirsty you know tyrant who's who, who's who's going to just delight to inflict punishment on people but but in a sense they're sort of they sort of get what they were asking for. That's what God's judgment is. is God giving us over to the very things that we have done. it's interesting in, in in Dante's Inferno, I don't know if you've ever read that maybe a long time ago in school, uh, but Dante's um, fictitious imagination of what hell is like, I mean obviously, we don't. We shouldn't take that as scriptural. It's not uh, accurate on every point, but it is. It is a, a sort of provocative reflection on what the torment of hell will be like. And and one of the things that you notice when you read the Inferno is this this uh, principle that scholars call it contrapasso, which basically is a Latin word that means a counter suffering. That many of the people in hell suffer the very things that they did in life. Or some or some sort of twist or turn on what they did in life. So, for example, the sorcerers, the astrologers, the magicians, uh, the false prophets are described in hell as having their heads turned around backwards. Do you see there's a kind of fittingness there? Like they, they were claiming to be able to look into the future through the use of the demonic arts and tell people what was going to happen, but now their faces are turned backwards where they can't even see in front of them. Right, so there's a kind of fit—a fit to what the punishment is, and that's often how God works. That that God will bring down upon us the very things that we did. You get messed, you get mixed up in some in some sin, you get mixed up in some slander, you get mixed up in some gossip, and you might realize that in the end, you're the victim of that very same sin. So there's a fittingness here. It's not that God is 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 vindictive, but God is just. There's a difference here. When we read passages like this that speak about God's judgment, and God's wrath, the punishment that he inflicts on people, we shouldn't mistake that as some kind of, again, some kind of bloodlust or vindictiveness, but God is just. God will give you what you want. That's what hell really is, is God giving you exactly what you want. And in the end, you realize it's not what you wanted at all. So it's a stern warning here, right? I mean, for God's people, it's a promise. But it's also here a warning to those who rebel against God and abuse and hurt others. Now, what follows then in verses 9 and following is, is a poem, a song that is describing this call of the nations to come down to the valley in order to be judged by God. One of the things that stood out to me here is verse 10, where he says, beat your plowshares into swords. That sounds familiar to us because we're more familiar with the, the exact opposite of that in Isaiah chapter two, verse four, where God in promising the future peace of the coming kingdom says the exact opposite. And in, in Isaiah two, God says, beat your swords in the plowshares and your spears into the pruning hooks. Joel was probably familiar with the book of Isaiah. Um, again, there's debate about this. When was Joel written before or during after the exile? Um, It's not terribly important, as Matt mentioned the first week we looked at this, but many scholars believe that Joel, because Joel is so dependent upon many of the other prophets, I mean, he quotes Ezekiel, he quotes Isaiah, he quotes Jeremiah, and one place he even alludes to Exodus. There's a lot of scriptural references in Joel. You kind of follow the footnotes if you have a, a reference Bible. You can see all the different places where Joel is quoting from other uh, passages, but he probably has in mind here Isaiah, right? There is a future coming when, when swords will be turned into plowshares, right? There, there, so that there'll be no more war, there'll be peace. But before that, Joel says, there's going to be war. There's going to be a judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat. God is coming to judge the nations. It's another kind of reversal for the wicked. And then the other thing that stood out to me in this this extended poem, uh, from verses nine to seventeen, is uh, this repeated phrase in verse fourteen about the valley of decision? Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. There is a decision that is coming. We often read about Supreme Court decisions, right? That's that's the idea here, that there is a verdict, a sentence coming from the Lord. And I just want you to know, if, you're here, if you hear my voice this morning, that judgment is coming for each of you. We just read about it in Sunday school this morning from 2 Corinthians. For we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for all that we have done, whether good or bad. A day of judgment is coming. The psalmist says, the God who dug the ears, does he not hear? The God who sunk the eyes, does he not see? We sometimes think that we're going to get by with with something, right? And we kind of skate past, fooled everybody. You can't fool God. One day, the books will be opened and your life will be exposed. And you, even you personally, We'll stand before the Lord and give an account. Are you ready for that day? I think sometimes we we can kind of look down on hellfire and brimstone preaching a little too much in circles like ours and we think well that, maybe that's not the way we don't want to scare people you know we don't want to portray we don't want to sort of portray God as as, as angry and wrathful and there's probably some truth to that kind of criticism. There's a certain kind of hellfire and brimstone preaching that insufficiently emphasizes the love of God and the grace of God and the welcoming embrace of God. But we don't want to react to one error by committing the opposite error. Judgment, wrath, anger, punishment, that's all in the Bible. Judgment is coming. A coming day of wrath. But the good news is what we read last week in in chapter 2. The Spirit has come The church now proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved this very day. You can be saved from the coming wrath of God. And I just want you to know, some of you children, maybe someone visiting, if you don't know that you will escape the coming wrath, through faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you, I plead with you to settle that this very day. Talk to your parents. Talk to someone who brought you. Talk to a a Christian friend. If you don't know that you will escape the judgment of God through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, let's settle that this very day. You can know. Call on his name. You can know that you will be saved. Let's not ever get tired of preaching that message, that simple gospel message of salvation from the coming judgment. That's why Jesus came through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his spirit, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. God's people will be vindicated and God will judge. The second aspect of this promise in verses 17 and 21 is that God's place will be restored. God is not just concerned with the people, but he's concerned with the place The land that he made. Look again in verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. No more enemies will take God's people into exile when the kingdom comes. And notice again that it is the presence of the Lord that is the cause and ground of the change that is effected in the land. I dwell in Zion. On my holy hill. It is the presence of the Lord that makes heaven heaven. It is the presence of the Lord that makes the new creation the new creation. Because God is there. Notice though that the restoration involves physical blessings. Look at verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. In a place that struggled to find water often in the ancient Near East. We, we can, we, we, you know, modern plumbing, you know, we, we just take for granted that we, we're going to have flowing water. But the stream beds will flow with water, he says, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So there are physical blessings here. This is parallel to what is, is in chapter 2, verses 22 to 27 as well. And it echoes language about the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey which in turn echoes language about Eden. The stream stream beds flowing with water like the four rivers that watered the Garden of Eden. This is new creation language. You see, the blessings of salvation do include physical blessings. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just what happens in our hearts, but there are also physical blessings that attend the coming kingdom of God. Now, I think... Sometimes, because we are rightly skittish about the prosperity gospel, we can sometimes miss this truth. That salvation is not just about the spiritual, but also the physical. Now, if you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, it's basically a view often popularized by television, television preachers, but others as well, that says, if you have enough faith and you just name it and claim it, then you will be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And if anyone struggles financially or gets sick and dies, it's because they didn't have enough faith. That God wants you to have your best life now. All of it. Right now. God wants you to get that promotion, to get that beautiful boy or girl that you want to marry, to, you know, to get that car or that vacation home that you want. Basically turns the gospel into, um, you know, a, a ticket to, to luxury. And I just, you know, I think in a place like this, it kind of goes without saying that that's a false gospel. But let me just say it, that's a false gospel. It's not about seizing wealth now. In fact, Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Riches in the New Testament are often conceived of as a curse as a temptation as a thorn as a lure it's not to say that rich people can't go to heaven but it is to say it's a unique temptation it's one that we in our american context uh, we often struggle with just how harsh the new testament is about wealth because we take it for granted that acquisitiveness is a virtue acquiring more and more and more and more when in fact it's a vice Riches are not a vice, but acquisitiveness, greed is a vice. And also, God never promised that on this side of the new heavens and the new earth, God has never promised that believers will be spared the afflictions that are common to humanity. We will all get sick. We will all die. Many of us will lose jobs. Many of us will wonder how we're going to pay our bills. That's not a sign of weakness in your faith. That's a sign of the fall. And until Jesus comes and makes all things new, believers alongside unbelievers will be subject to the common afflictions of humanity. But the gospel still includes physical blessings, it's not just a disembodied, purely spiritual reality. Think about the ministry of Jesus. He didn't just preach to people's souls. He healed their bodies. He didn't just sit down and teach people. He opened blind eyes. He opened deaf ears. And you think about what the New Testament church did after Jesus ascended to heaven, poured out his spirit. What did they do? They took care of each other's physical needs. They ministered to the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. That's part of our mission. It's not to say that we're going to alleviate all poverty on earth, but we do, as Paul commands us to do, we should do our best to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. We have an obligation, not just to preach the gospel, but also to care for people's physical needs, which is why everywhere the church has, has, has taken root, There's always been ministry to the poor. Uh, There's always been the the, the building of of hospitals and universities and schools because we recognize that even though we can't solve every problem, we have an obligation before God. We have an obligation not just to say, here's the gospel, go hungry, but also to attend to people's physical needs. So both Jesus did it, the New Testament church did it. We too ought to care about people's physical needs. And in the end, the blessing of salvation will involve not only our souls, but also our bodies. The great hope of the New Testament is not just the immortality of the soul, but it's the resurrection of the body. That when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise us from the dead. He made us embodied souls and he will raise us as embodied souls. And in the end, it's not just heaven, but it's a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, it's heaven coming down to earth. This very world will be renewed and restored on the last day. Go read Revelation 21. So it's, uh, it involves not only spiritual, but also physical blessings. And that's what's being described here in verse 18. Wine, milk, streams of water. And yet, even those eternal Post-resurrection physical blessings are still but pointers to the superior beatitude of knowing God. It's not as if heaven is like Earth only longer and without the bad stuff. I don't know if you saw if you saw that show, The Good Place. I don't want to spoil it for you, but and I'm not. I don't. I, I hate when preachers spoil stuff. Um, that's actually one of the takeaways from that show. I think it's a brilliant, brilliantly written show. Uh, I don't know if they intended it, but one of my takeaways from that show was that unending pleasures is not the hope, not not the hope of heaven. Just just heaven is not just earth, but longer and without the bad stuff. Heaven is heaven because the Lord dwells in Zion. Because even those physical pleasures that we will enjoy, whatever that looks like in our resurrection bodies, Jesus ate a fish in Luke 24. The the, the coming kingdom is described as a wedding banquet. It's described here as sweet wine, milk, and streams of water. Whatever that looks like in our resurrection bodies, that's not the end of our, that's not the end of our longing. The end of our longing is God. Every other good lowercase g good is pointing us to the good that is the eternal beatitude of knowing, of beholding, of being fixed and transfixed on God himself. Everything that is true and good and beautiful in the world is just a pointer to the one who is truth, who is beauty, who is goodness. Heaven is heaven because the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells there. That's why the new heavens and the new earth will be such a rich, richly blessed place. Think about what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 48, 35. And the name of the city, the coming city, the coming kingdom of God, the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. That's why heaven is heaven. Not just because our loved ones are there, as as wonderful as that will be, that wonderful reunion day when we see those who have gone before us again. Heaven is heaven, not just because they have really good food, really good wine. Heaven is heaven because the Lord is there. Think about how the story ends. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So what we see in this passage, God's people will be vindicated. God's place will be restored. It's happening even now through the spirit empowered proclamation of the gospel through the church. So what does this mean for us? Well, really quickly, just a couple of points of application. I think we can take the whole of this chapter, the whole of this book that we read here in Joel And it comes to us as a word from God. I think you just need to always remember when you read the Bible that the Bible is not imprisoned in the past. It's not just a historical book about what happened way back then. The gospel is the living voice of Christ to the church. So when you sit down to read the Bible, study it, study the historical context, study the grammatical features of the text, study the ancient Near Eastern parallels, study all the references, the cross references, do all that good interpretive work. But then open your heart to hear what God is saying to you. God wants, every time you open the Bible, God wants to say something to you personally. Some new truth to believe. Some new command to obey. Some new promise to believe. Some new warning to heed. And there's probably lots of ways we could summarize that, but I I take it that this chapter, at least as I reflected on it this week, comes to us as a word of comfort. And a word of warning. A word of comfort and a word of warning. It is a word of comfort. And some of you need it. Some of you need to hear it. No doubt. Some of you have suffered. Some of you have been mistreated. Some of you may have been abused. Some of you may have been persecuted. All of us have suffered the afflictions of life. And the word of God to us this morning is a great reversal is coming. The wicked will be judged and God's people will be vindicated. Again, you may not see it right away. You may not see it in your lifetime. Many of the exiles didn't see it either. But it is coming. And you can have hope that God will right every wrong. God will punish the wicked. God will vindicate his people. So just be encouraged today. I don't know if I don't know all of your stories. Maybe someone walked in here really discouraged. I know I feel that way a lot. We just get down about what's going on in our lives, our families, at work, in our country, and the world. God says, I may not have done it yet. But I will avenge my people because the Lord dwells in Zion. And then secondly, this text comes to us as a warning. But also, the, 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 the obverse of that, the, the opposite side of the coin of the warning, is an invitation. So it's a warningslash invitation to us. The judgment is coming. Again, God hears, God sees, God knows. You can't hide from God, and judgment is coming. And in fact, judgment is already here in Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword, a sword of division. I will divide mother-in-law from daughter-in-law, father from son. There's di- Christ is, is a div- div- divisive figure in one sense because Jesus Christ comes as the great crisis point of humanity, the great time of choice. Will you believe in him or not? So the judgment, in some sense, is already here. Just as Jesus says that the Spirit, this Spirit who is poured out on all flesh so that the young and old will prophesy and dream dreams and see visions, this same Spirit comes, Jesus says, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Judgment is already here through the work of Christ, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it's coming. It's both now and not yet, both here and there. So what's happening now is that God has in his great, infinite mercy essentially issued a stay of execution. He has issued a reprieve in this time between the times, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, God has issued a reprieve so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, some of you, even this day, may need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. But all of us know people who are are facing down the coming judgment of God. And I know I was convicted again this week at just how unconcerned I am for the lost. There are people who will, will come into this valley of Jehoshaphat, this valley of judgment that I know, that you know, who are unprepared for that day of decision? What are you going to do this week? Don't make this some abstract application. What are you going to do this week to pray for, to love, to serve, to seek to share the gospel with an unbeliever in your life? You know, one of the things that the Southern Baptist Convention has emphasized over the last several years is who's your one? Are you familiar with that? I had a, a Sunday school teacher in, in college who used to he used to have uh, five people that he was sharing the gospel with, and five people that he was discipling. So five unbelievers, he was actively praying for by name on a daily basis and seeking to to share the gospel with them. And when and, and he was a soul winner, so sometimes he would win one of them to Christ. He, so he would take them off the hand, put them on the disciple hand, and he would put somebody else on the unbelieving hand. He had two hands. He was doing evangelism and discipleship all the time. What about just one? I mean, maybe you might say, man, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, five unbelievers. I, I work at a Christian university, you know. Um, it's, sometimes we can get in our Christian bubbles. What about just one? You know one person who doesn't know the Lord? Who's your one? Every human being will come into this valley and give an account of their life. To the judge of all the earth. It's a warning of the coming judgment, but it's also an invitation. That in in a way, today is the valley of decision. There's another valley of decision coming. It'll be too late then. But even this very day, as we sit here before God, today can be your valley of decision. To trust yourself, to entrust yourself to Christ for salvation or maybe just to recommit to live your life as holy before the Lord and to share the love of Christ with those around you. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks that you've given us this grace that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that ahead of that great day of decision, there can be a day of decision now. Help us to decide well in Jesus' name.